This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. Jackson Takish is the chief economist at Farmer Mac. He provides a national and global view of where the farm economy stands and where we may be heading. And in the second half of the show, Susan Weaver Ford, the top producer trailblazer of the year, shares the story of her farm and how she's making a living in an area of increasing urban sprawl. It's our topic for this week's Farm in the Countryside, and it's brought to you by Pivot Bio. If you ask farmers what their greatest concern is this year, they will likely say rising nitrogen prices. For our farm, higher nitrogen prices and our desire to increase bushels with more sustainable farming methods led me to Pivot Bio Proven 40, which can produce up to the equivalent of 40 pounds of synthetic nitrogen. Our field demonstrations show an opportunity for a better ROI and a reduction of synthetic nitrogen. Turn to a better nitrogen with Pivot Bio. I hope you'll learn more. Just go to pivotbio.com. Jackson Takish is the chief economist and senior director at Farmer Mac. There's plenty to discuss on a national level when it comes to the farm economy, of course, and we will certainly do that coming up. But I also wanted to visit with Jackson about how the trends we are experiencing in the U.S. are also impacting other nations around the globe. Is the U.S. at a comparative advantage to some of its competitors in the ag sector? That's just one of the many topics we covered as we took a look at national and global economic trends. Jackson, many people have heard of Farmer Mac, but that's where I want to begin is who and what is Farmer Mac? Well, Farmer Mac is a secondary market for agricultural real estate lending, as well as rural infrastructure lending across the country. So uh, we are government sponsored. We were GSE created coming out of the 1980s uh, farm financial crisis to create more liquidity, more places for ag lenders to turn to uh, offer you know, increasingly long uh, interest rate products to help farmers fix interest expense and to create that source of liquidity for uh, rural America. So you're the chief economist. You're always looking at things in, in agriculture. Give us kind of a historic pr- perspective. We have come through 2020 and 2021. We hate to use the word unprecedented, but in a lot of ways it was unprecedented. Kind of give me the overall look at how much cash we had coming into agriculture because 2021 was a pretty big year for a lot of farmers. It, it certainly was. I'd say the drivers are different, but the, the size of the cash infusion and the working capital that came back into the sector uh, was about the same. So the different drivers in 2020 was probably more government related. So a lot of support programs coming uh, from both the market facilitation program that was sort of sunsetting at that time, as well as the coronavirus food assistance program, which was just spinning up at that time. So you saw almost $50 billion come into uh, the U.S. agricultural system, specifically for producers to try to help make it uh, to the next uh, upswing in commodity prices. Well, that upswing came pretty quickly, and it came in 2021. So uh, there was still some government support coming in, some of that cash was coming in, but farmers were able to tap into those higher commodity prices almost immediately in 2021. So anything they grew in 20 that they held over, they got a pretty nice windfall uh, from higher commodity prices in 21. So a little bit different drivers, but in both cases, you saw a lot of cash coming back into farm balance sheets uh, and helping farmers sort of cure some of the working capital deficits from the prior years. We saw cash come in not only in agriculture, but 
a lot of industries and really a lot of countries. So as we move to 2022, that's obviously changing. So how does that impact our, our global economy then, do you think? It's going to be a big deal. I mean, it, it, we needed, we had a, a trillion dollar hole, a $4 trillion hole in the America's GDP, as well as other countries had their own uh, holes in their economy. So it was absolutely necessary to, to see some action, some physical response uh, to that. How do we unwind from there? That's where your, your question is, is spot on. It could, it could come in a couple of different ways. You see people withdraw. Maybe the economic activity is strong enough that no one notices. Wages have risen. Inflation has kind of propped up uh, some of these economies. So it could be unnoticed. Or there could be some difficulties uh, for some countries who overextended some of that support payments. You could see some difficulties bringing people back into the workforce. Uh, maybe inflation runs a little too hot uh, in, some, in some cases. So those are sort of your upside and downside. Either the economy takes off and it, it is helped and supported by those payments. And that's what we all want to be the case. But it could be that maybe you got it a little too hot and then you're dealing with inflation and a workforce who uh, may not want to work as much as they did before. How much do you believe the inflation is a lot of cash coming into the economy versus supply chain? Uh, there's a lot of different things. And then how quickly does this inflation come back toward a more normal level? Well, I think most of the inflation is related to supply chain. So a lot of that comes from the disruptions, uh, not being able to ship things where you needed to, when you needed to, or paying too much to get them there when you needed to get them there. So a lot of that is still working its way through uh, all of the goods, manufacturing, and all those types of things. Supply or the services sector really hasn't seen that level yet because we haven't been kind of back in the services sector yet. I think that may, may come later. Uh, but certainly when you have a lot of cash, a lot of the money supply increases, that exacerbates some of those problems. So when you do start to see prices rise, people have the cash to pay them. So, you know, it, it kind of feeds on itself. So I think it, it wasn't started by the cash infusion, but it might be extended by the amount of money supply that's out there. When we look at inflation for food, uh, you can talk about where we're at with that. How should agriculture look at that? Because we sell food. So uh, if we get a higher price for food, perhaps that's all right. But yet inflation can be something that can be a detriment, especially when we have to buy inputs too. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword for, for sure. You want to see, you want to get that raise. And, and in order to have a raise on the farm, sometimes you do need to see a little bit more food price inflation. So when we've gotten food price inflation in the past, it's led to some of the biggest farm booms uh, in history. So in the 1970s, again, in the 2010 era, uh, all of those times we saw food price inflation rising faster than general price inflation. So it's necessary, but you're, you're exactly right. You don't, as a farmer, want to charge more for people to eat, right? You're, you're, you want to provide the safest, the most abundant, uh, the best food source to, to the world. So it's a little bit of conflict there. You need the raise, but you also don't want to see people not afford food. As we look ahead then, and perhaps this is too difficult to predict, but we have seen the inflation of input prices, you know, energy prices, definitely fertilizer on the ag side. Do those begin to come back to normal fairly quickly as well? Or are we living in a time in which we just know we're going to have to give more for a while for some of these inputs? I think we had to be prepared for a longer, more extended uh, input price inflation, but it could turn around faster. So you know, I'll kind of speak out of both sides of my mouth right there with that answer. Um, Yes, there are supply chain pressures. There are uh, a lot of wells that you know essentially got capped or turned off of production when you had negative oil prices uh, in 2020. We're living through that today, right? One of the reasons why oil has not come back or has not uh, come back into production is they, it takes time to kind of bring all that back. A lot of production was turned off. Simultaneously, you have policies pointing at more investment in renewable fuels or uh, you know non-fossil fuel based uh, energy sources. So you got those two things at play. 
But what will cure a lot of this is, is $90 oil, right? So the higher the oil price, the more uh, wells come back online, the more production comes back online and starts to turn around some of these supply shortages. So that's the part I don't know about, that we could see that happen faster or it could take a little bit more time. But certainly prices, you know, the, the best cure for high prices is high prices. We tend to know, of course, what we live here in the United States. But as we look at these other countries, perhaps South America, Brazil, Argentina, they are experiencing what we are. Would that be correct? And maybe in some cases, even a more extreme case. Is that right? Yes, they 100 percent have the same inputs that we do. They import a lot of them. And so inflation affects them uh, at a a, probably a higher clip than it does us. We produce a lot. We have a lot of partners in North America who we can ship in between and uh, exchange goods, uh, particularly on inputs. So we we were a little bit blessed in how close some of those inputs are to us, less so in South America. And they're dealing with uh, runaway inflation in some cases. So you end up with a depreciating currency. So it costs you even more to input, to to import those inputs. Uh, So it's a they're getting hit twice, right? Not only does it cost them more because they got to input more, import more of their inputs, but they're paying more for those goods because their currencies are devaluing. So it's a, it's a really tough time to pencil a profit uh, in South America. Would we say then that our U.S. producers set up just as well as anybody in the, in the world then to, to take advantage, if you will, of the, the market in 2022? Yeah, for sure. I think we've got a good outlook in terms of uh, weather, soil moisture. Everything looks pretty positive coming into the planting season. Uh, So I think we're going to have a a decent crop. I think all the expectations are for a large crop in 22. So any shortages coming out of South America could be met and made up for by North American production. So feeling pretty good about where we sit agronomically. Uh, And then you look at trade. So what do our trading partners want? They want certainty. They want uh, you know, relatively good price, and they want to be able to sort of have that when they need it. So those things American producers can provide, I think we might see some swing back to uh, our exports from those uh, certainties that you can't necessarily get out of South America every year. So far, operating loans, probably pretty good interest rates. Uh, the land interest rates have crept up as we look at the short term. Would that be correct? Yeah, uh, short term and long term for real estate interest rates have come come up. They've kind of followed the U.S. Treasury rates. Uh, for the operating or production loans, those still have stayed fairly low, uh, maybe even tightened a little bit at the end of 2021. Uh, that has to do with just banks have a lot of liquidity, and they're really looking to uh, attract customers, and I think they're offering very competitive rates. And those rates are related almost one-to-one to that Fed funds rate, the Federal Reserve's uh, overnight rate. So as that rises, you'll start to see the upward pressure come into the, the operating uh, line expense. And it's one for one. So if the Fed raises 100 basis points, farmers should expect their operating expense rate to go up by one one percentage point. So as Farmer Mac looks ahead to 2022, net cash income for farmers expands just a little bit, gets a little better. What do you see? Yeah, that, that's, that's the baseline projection. So I agree with the USDA's most recent uh, look at the 2022 farm income outlook, which is revenues are going to go up, expenses are going to go up, and you see just a modest increase in that net cash farm income. I, I agree with that assessment. A few things could change between now and you know the end of the year to really make it a wide increase. We could see profits widen, uh, particularly more shortages throughout the globe and maybe some shortages uh, here if we see you know any sort of weather disruption could really drive up commodity prices. So there is some upside to that. Simultaneously, there's a downside if you see production 
uh, expenses rise faster than those revenues, that could put downward pressure on profitability. So we're at a pretty good spot. I say, you know, the, the outlook right now is very positive, but we haven't really even planted uh, much in the, in the crop year. So uh, we'll, as this thing starts to unfold, I think more we'll know more by the summer. So what should farmers be most aware of as we go into 2022, whether I'm just looking at general economic factors or things specific to agriculture? What do I need to have on my mind? Well, certainly paying attention to the things you can control. Um, you know, as a producer, there's a lot that's out of our control. So you can't control the weather, but you can buy crop insurance, right? So the, let's think through, as producers, let's think through uh, and try to fix those things that you can control. Particularly, I'm thinking about interest rate expense, so looking for longer-term fixed rate financing to uh, help capitalize the business. Even though rates are up, they're still historically low. So there's still opportunities for farmers to lock in those interest expenses, Um, making sure that production expenses are locked in as much as they can be, but maybe keeping some optionality in there. So you don't want to overpay for some uh, inputs. So looking for things like options or uh, other sorts of hedges uh, can help, I think, offset some of those um, expenses. Jackson, I appreciate the time. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Jackson always has a good perspective to share on trends at home while providing a global view of what's taking place. I think you'll really enjoy our next story. Susan Weaver Ford is from Kinley, North Carolina, and she is the 2022 Trailblazer of the Year award winner at the recent Top Producer Summit. Susan farms in North Carolina and has been on the farm all of her life, farming with her father. They work together, yet have their own parts of the farming operation as well. I really enjoyed hearing her story and learning from her life in an area of North Carolina that is experiencing advancing suburban sprawl. Susan, you were not only an award recipient here at Top Producer, but you farm in North Carolina. Talk about where you farm, because that plays into this story a little bit. Uh, You're not that far outside of the city, it doesn't sound like. No, because it's, it's meeting us pretty quick. We're, uh, depending on traffic, we're anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour east of Raleigh, right off of 95. And and we're really getting encroached upon, upon very quickly from Raleigh. It, it went to Raleigh to Clayton. Clayton now's headed, you know, down 42 towards Wilson and 70, you know, towards Goldsboro. Uh, talk about the farm itself. Has it been in the family for a long time? And, and what's your history, I guess, with the farm? It has, but so... My father's father ended up having a cell farm, and um, my dad and one uncle went together to buy what they could to help get them out of debt. And um, from there, they split. You know, my uncle went and worked a job with with, with some malls to kind of, you know, and he was a Saturday farmer. My daddy had to make a decision about the time I was born whether to stay with Swift and Company and, you know, in table-ready meats going to Illinois of all places or make the decision with a newborn at home to to just stay in farm full-time and he made that decision and and from there you could call us a generational farm I assume but really you know it's all been him everything we've got has come from him. So where did you fit in the picture or were you always in the picture then growing up there? I want to say I've always been in the picture you know I'm an only child and he just couldn't get away from me. Uh, if he was on the tractor, I was with him. If he was on the lawnmower, I was with him. You know, he he put blocks on the tractor where I could drive it on the 140 when I was little, you know, to, to get me out there. I'd, I'd race home from school, and instead of, you know, going in and doing homework, if we were sitting biker, I'd run, try to get a peg, and walk behind the transplanter. You know, I've always been there. I always wanted to do it, I feel like. You have a really, I shouldn't say unique, it's a great relationship with your father, Talk about how that works because it's really the two of you putting a lot of this work together on the farm. Isn't that right? 
Yes, I mean, we got three good guys that help us year-round, you know, and, and they do a lot of work, but all the decisions I feel like are made between me and my father. You know, we, we do things separately but together. And, and it's an odd situation, but it works for us. You know, we share equipment, we share labor, but we have our own individual crops, but we still manage it the same. So, so talk about what crops you each have then. So um, we, all, we each have tobacco, corn, beans, wheat, and cotton. And about three years ago, I added oats to my mix because I just couldn't make a profit on wheat. And I thought, well, there's got to be something else, you know. So I, I implemented oats, and I got back into wheat last year, and I enjoyed it. But the oats give me a little bit of a – allows me to be a little bit different. Sometimes I'm bullheaded, you know. Can't do what my daddy does all the time, so I put the oats in. It gives, But it gives us a chance. I got some land that's real sandy. And the oats have seemed to help improve that a little bit. So I, um, I've, I got to about 80 acres, just enough to play with. But it allows us, you know, to get in and pick that about a week or so earlier than we would the wheat to get us. So we, we double crop a lot, about 800 acres of beans. So it allows us to get those double crop beans in a little sooner. And I've, I've partnered with a local feed mill. And he buys all my oats, which is good because, you know, I turn around and buy them again later in hog feed or cow feed for my for my daughter's animals. Talk about the tobacco for just a moment, because for a lot of folks listening to this, that is something that we don't know much about. But yet it's a pretty big part of what you do, isn't it, there on the farm? It is. Used to, you know, tobacco paid all the bills and all the other crops are just kind of Christmas money, as we used to call it. You know, but as as, you know, regulations have gotten tougher, it's made it harder H2A wage labor went up a dollar and a penny last year to $14.16 this year. Um, regulations, government regulations have gotten harder. Decrease in smoking has gotten a lot, you know, has, has cut contract pounds back a whole lot. So it, it's not the crop it once was, but it's still pretty much the crop that defines us as a farm. We talked about the city is coming towards you all the time. How is that impacting your operation then? Or are those acres then designated that they will always be kept in in farmland? Are there covenants or other things on your farm and area farms? Uh, How do you deal with that in in North Carolina where you farm? Um, There are no covenants in place for us. You know, so if a landlord wants to sell it, they have that that right to sell. Um, We've lost quite a bit of farmland here in the last few years to housing developments you know places you would thought would never sell they've got 36 houses on you know and it, it i think they have to have like maybe a quarter of an acre of land to put a house on is all the requirement is in johnson county um i wish our commissioners would have i may get in trouble for saying this but i wish our commissioners 20 or 30 years ago would have put some stipulations in place i mean we have our infrastructure our roads are not capable of handling any type of the insurgents we're having from the increase of population coming. Um, our schools are built to capacity. They're not built to, you know, so on opening day you may have trailers in the school parking lots because to handle the the extra children that are coming in. So our schools are built to capacity and nothing extra. Um, I just don't think Johnson County as a whole can, can handle that right now, and I think we need – you know, but you don't want to stop the progress or the growth, but we've got to have some kind of stipulations in place to slow it down some. So what do you think that means then for the future of farmers in that county or where you're at then? Is it a bright future and you can keep farming or does eventually the price of the land for development become to such a point that you say, well, we can't in a sense afford to farm? What do you see coming or are we a long ways from that, do you think? No, I think we're, we're in that right now. I mean, land rent's gone you know, for us, sky high in places. Um, 
the price per acre of land trying to buy you can't there's no way you can buy it and afford it to, to pay for it with farming i mean and and every acre doesn't grow houses you know and up towards clayton archer's lodge area they're selling land right now i think a quarter of an acre is about eighty thousand dollars for about a third of an acre i think is what it was is like eighty thousand dollars for a third of an acre we can't compete with that you know but every piece of farmland is not not quality farmland some of it needs houses or needs something else than than a crop you know to but so yeah it's just it's getting inflated prices are very inflated even for just some normal farmland that you would think oh, i could I'll, I'll inquire about that you know the prices are sky high ten twelve thousand dollars an acre so given that do you still see a bright future though for your farm and a future for your farm uh, where you're at then I think so. I think, but I think at the same time, to get that bright future, we may have to make changes to what we do. You know, our we don't have large field sizes out there. We one of the largest farms that we tend is the biggest farm on it. The biggest field is like forty acres. You know, so we we don't have you know gigantic you know fields or whatever you may say. So we have to kind of you know it's a lot smaller, but. Yeah, we just we might have to change the way we farm a little bit, or or maybe our crop mix. We're here at the top producer conference, and you mentioned that your farm and where you farm is different than a lot of other folks maybe in, in farming. What can we learn from you? Because the rest of us see the world perhaps in a different way than you do where you farm. So what are the rest of us missing that you say, "Hey, <laughs> I know how to deal with this because I deal with it all the time." Well, I think two things. One, a lot of the guys here are no-till. And we do as much as we can no-till or strip-till. But at the end of the day, we have to be conventional-till because of the bica. You know, that land's got to be dissed and dissed. And then we, you know, run rows and we keep the weeds out. So we can't be a straight conventional or a straight, I'm sorry, a straight no-till or straight strip-till operation only because of tobacco. And, and, you know, the guys would, would say peanuts or sweet potatoes, they're the exact same way. So as much as we would want to be total no-till, it, it's just not an option for us. So. You were recognized as a trailblazer. Uh, why do you think you were recognized uh, for that? What is it that you uh, do? Because certainly in visiting with you and seeing the story of your farm, uh, I think you are. That's probably the toughest question you've asked because I personally don't see myself as a trailblazer. I just see myself as getting up and going to work every morning just like all these other guys do. It's, you know, it's the way I was raised. You know, we get up, we go to work, we do our job, we come home, take care of our family. So I, I don't know. They just must have saw something in me that they that they liked. <laughs> but for me, I'm just pretty normal. <laughs> so I'm sorry about that answer, but it just I'm just pretty normal. <laughs> well, no, that's it's a good answer. One of the things that we haven't talked about is is and you I think joke about this is is that some people may see that your farm is different than others because your husband is a teacher, correct? And a lot of farm families, it's the the reverse, but it, it works well for you. Is that something you joke about with the other farmers in the area? Sometimes, you know, and, and me and my husband, I get a kick out of it. And, and my old banker, before he left to work with Steve Troxler at NCDA, you know, we kind of got a kick out of it. Usually, you know, the, the woman's the one that's a school teacher and stays at home. But, but, yeah, he is the school teacher, and he's the one that gets out and goes to work every day. What do you enjoy most about being out on the farm? I get to work with my dad every day. Everybody can't do that. And, and you know, like... My children can come with me. I know everything's bigger and stronger than it used to be when I was small, you know, young and all. But take, for instance, in 2020, 
River, who's my seven-year-old little boy, he was quarantined from school. He didn't have COVID, but he was close contact quarantined. And it was about that time to put in a wheat crop. Well, guess who got to help put the wheat crop in? River did. You know, he, he got all the land ready with me. He was able to cut all the wheat in. We broadcast a lot of our wheat instead of drill it. And then he he rode in the sprayer with me to spray, you know, pre-emergence on it. So, you know, just, just things like that. Or, or, you know, I can spend more time with them. And, and I know there's a lot of quality learning in the classroom. There's just as much, if not better, you know, being able to spend time with your children and then learn in a different different setting. It looks like you have a very special bond, not only with your uh, father, but also your kids. It's truly a family operation there. I think so. I think so. You know, and nowadays it seems like a lot of times the family farm has gotten lost to, you know, to the business side of it. But we still try to incorporate the family as much as we can. Susan, I appreciate the time and congratulations on your award. Thank you. I appreciate it. If you've not yet seen it, you should just search AgWeb for the video about Susan Weaver Ford. You'll enjoy seeing her farm and the special relationship she maintains with her father and her entire family. Susan told me that she didn't really know why she was selected as this year's winner. However, when you watch the video, I think you'll quickly see some of the reasons she and her farm are true trailblazers. Thanks for catching this edition of our show. Remember, you can hear all of our shows at farmingthecountryside.com or on your favorite podcast platform. And you can follow Farming the Countryside on Facebook as well. I appreciate you listening. I'm Andrew McRae. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. This edition of Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com.